Father, we just thank you for all that you're doing in our lives and for this day, this moment that we come and we celebrate your goodness. We lift up your holiness. Lord, we just pray that you would inspire us, that you would give us a passionate curiosity for you and your word, that we would understand you more and we would go deeper in our relationship, our walk with you. Father, I'm just so thankful for those that have gathered here this morning. May our hearts be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this morning, if you have your Bible with you, open it to 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 22 through 53. 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 22 through 53. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the scripture on the overhead. And this is what I want you to know ahead of time. We're not going to go through and read every verse, verse by verse here. What I want to do is just take a few passages out of this passage and highlight them so that you can look and understand understand what God is up to in this scripture here. Uh, this is a scripture that to me has so much intrigue. It does uh, and deals a lot with new beginnings. It deals with transition, just the same things that you're facing today. And I thought, wow, this would be a great thing for us to clue in on. This would be a great place for us to go in scripture and try to understand what is God doing? Fundamentally, what does God do uh, in new beginnings? What does he do and how does he work through transitions? And so when I read this passage, I recognize that God teaches me. His Holy Spirit teaches me. This story is really all about new beginnings. King David passes the kingdom off to his son, King Solomon. Uh, and one of the first things King Solomon uh, is charged with is to build the holy temple. This is his responsibility. God said, it's your, it's your turn. You're up. You're the one that needs to build this great, magnificent temple. So here's what's interesting to me. Uh, this is something that David always wanted to do. King David had a heart. He had a passion to build the temple of God. In fact, you would think he would be qualified. You would think this would be the guy that would do it. I mean, he had the moniker. He had the label, a man after God's own heart. That's the person that you want to charge to build the temple. But David was running into some problems. David dealt with some things in his own life because he wasn't given that task. He wasn't going to be the one that was going to do this. And the reason God will show us in Scripture, the reason comes a little later. But can you imagine being that person? Just imagine yourself being King David, and you go through all the, the sweat and blood to get the nation of Israel to this place where they're going to build this magnificent, magnificent temple. I mean, David fought the Jebusites for this place. He paid for it with his own blood. He sacrificed his own life, literally laying his own life down to bring the Ark of God's Covenant to Mount Moriah, uh, Jerusalem, the holy mount, you have a different names for it, but this is exactly what David wanted to do. This was a desire of his heart because a few chapters earlier in 1 Kings 2, King David passes the kingdom to Solomon with a vision unfulfilled. Uh, David had a passion for God. David wanted to do this. It's because God specifically and expressly told him that he would not be the one to build the temple. There was, there was nothing that was vague. There was nothing ambiguous about this. This was very clear. God said, David, you're not going to be the one. And there's reason is found. The reason is found in 1 Chronicles 22, 8. And the Lord's speaking to David, and this is what he says. But this is the word of the Lord who, that came to me. 
You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You're not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest, and he will give him, and, and I will give him rest for all of his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon, and I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. There was much blood on David's hands. Shedding of blood was actually in David's heart. This is interesting to me because, again, you would think he would be the one paving the way. But David was a warrior king. I think that can't be overstated. David was a warrior king. And without a warrior king, you don't even get to this place. You don't even get to the place where the next generation gets to do what God has called them to do. So he makes a way. In fact, his public career starts off on the battlefield. If you remember this, he's called to the Valley of Elah. His brothers are there. King Saul is there. And so was the giant Goliath. This is where he is featured. This is where he becomes uh, an icon in history. It's right here in this place. So it gives you an idea of his trajectory. You know, where is he going to be found? He's going to be found many times on a battlefield. He's going to be found many times fighting the enemy. But to succeed and thrive as a warrior king requires certain attributes, certain characteristics, certain qualities about his life. And David was no different. David had this quality about him. He remembered who'd done him wrong. You see, David had in his heart a measure of vengeance. And I'm glad God doesn't skip over this. I'm glad that God shows us that David was vengeful. David, David wanted to take it out on his enemies. And you see that. Even in his dying breath, what does he do? He puts a hit out on two guys. I mean, he's talking to his son Solomon, and you'd think you would hear words like, that a boy, go get him, I'm proud of you, you can do it, take it over. You know what it says? It says that he puts a hit out on two guys, and the King James, I love what King James says, and he dieth. I mean, these are the last breaths that he takes. And you see it in here in uh, 1 Kings chapter 2. It says, deal with him according to your wisdom, talking to, to Solomon, but do not let his gray head go down to the grave in peace. Who's he talking to and talking about? He's talking to Solomon, but he's talking about his nephew, Joab. See, Joab was actually one of his great generals, but Joab had a mean streak. Joab was hard to control. Joab actually killed David's friend, Abner, and David went off. David did not like that one bit. In fact, history tells us that while this is being passed, this kingdom's being passed off from David to Solomon, Joab at this very moment is off to the side conspiring on how to get rid of Solomon so that he could insert his own king. Joab's not a good guy. So David says, don't let him grow old. You got to take him down. And then he turns and he looks at one other person and says, and remember, you have with you Shimei, son of Gerera, the Benjamite from Baharum, who called down bitter curses on me the day that I went to Mahanim, when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death by the sword, but now do not consider him innocent. You are a man of wisdom. You will know what to do to bring him to this place. Bring his gray head down to the grave in blood, and then he dies. 
See, he wanted to take care of a few things. And this, to me, is so astonishing because of his, his artistic abilities, his, his personality, him being, and we know him as, as a lover, and then he turns and he does something just like this. I think what David understood is he understood that these two would be a great problem, a, a huge obstacle for Solomon to move for, further. Solomon is young. He's coming into kingship. He doesn't have a whole lot of experience. So what does David do? He makes a way. He says, these guys are going to cause you a lot of problems, so they've, they've got to be dealt with. And so what does he do? Those obstacles are removed. You know, when I read something like this, there are always lessons, especially during transition. And I'm, I'm paying attention to that in my own life. Uh, I don't have a whole lot of years left, and so I'm looking at what do transitions look like? Uh, what should they look like? Uh, God, can you help us through these times, new beginnings? And that's exactly what you are facing today in your church. So there are a few lessons that stood out to me about this, uh, this secession from David to Solomon. First of all is this. See, David, when he wanted to build the temple, God said, no, you cannot do that. It's going to be passed to your son Solomon. What I get there, what I understand there is there's generations that are called to do certain things. There are certain leaders called to do certain things according to God's call, his anointing, uh, their task. This is something that's left up to God. That God says, this is what I want you to do. You need to carry this task out. You need to follow this great plan. See, our great plan today is, is found in Matthew. It's found in the latter part of the book of Matthew. It's the Great Commission. What I love about the Great Commission is it tells us this is the plan, but every generation has approached it differently. Every generation has approached the Great Commission in a different way, according to their call, according to their gifts, according to what God has, has, uh, has called them to do. And so in this passage of Scripture, you see the very same thing happening here. God is saying to David, this isn't something for you to do. This is something for your son to do. We're going to pass it on to the next generation. You know what I gather from that is uh, I know there are things that a lot of us want to do that maybe we don't get to do. But it reminds me that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not eternal. God's eternal. And God has an eternal plan, and he uses the generations to accomplish that plan. Not just one generation, but all generations. See, there's a generation following us that God is calling out right now, that God is equipping right now, that God is making ready right now to lead the body of Christ through this next 25 or 30 or 40 years. And it's not going to be me. I would love to be part of that, but it's not going to be me. What I get to do is I get to pay attention. I get to watch. I get to take some responsibility and make a way for that next generation. Here's something else. When God says no to one leader and one generation like he did with David, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love David. It doesn't mean that God doesn't like David. Oftentimes we equate no with I don't like you. We equate no with something shameful. In this case, when God says no... It isn't a lack of love for David. It's just a simple no. David, you're not going to do this. You're not the guy that's been equipped to do this or called to do this. It simply means God wants to include the generations to come and their specific giftings in his plan. Um, we, again, are temporary. God is eternal. So God shows love and grace when he says no. 
So whenever you're in uh, life's journey and the Lord comes along and puts a halt on something or says no to something that you really want to do, would you know that that's God's compassion at work? <laughs> that's his grace at work? Because he really does know. He knows the days ahead of us. We don't, but God does. And so God's no is compassionate and grace-filled. And I'm so thankful for that. Like with Moses, if you remember, God said to Moses, you're not going to be the guy. You know, you're not going to go in the promised land. You get a little too angry. Told you to speak to a rock and you, you hit a rock. So, so you're not going to get to do this. But here's what God will often do. And I love this. I love this because he lets the sons and daughters do it. So if you're not going to do it, who, who or what or what generation is, is the next best thing? My kids. It's the next generation. So what, what does God do to set up Moses? He allows Joshua, his spiritual son, to lead them into the promised land while he watches this thing happen. I can't imagine how proud he might have felt. David does the same thing with Solomon. He passes, he passes the kingdom on. He had to feel, I think, proud and excited. I have three kids. I have eight grandkids. I love to, to watch them fulfill their dreams. And some of the things they do, I, I would have liked to have done. I have said, wow, I would have had fun doing that. But it wasn't for me. It's not for me. It's their time. It's their season. So what am I doing? I'm making a way. I'm looking at all the different ways that I can resource what God wants to do and accomplish in their life. I had a good friend tell me one time, a long time ago, he pulled me aside and he said, Ron, do you know who gets in the way of the current revivals that God wants to bring to his people? I said, no, who, who, who does that? And he says, it's the past generation that lived through a revival. Those are the ones that typically get in the way. <laughs> I repent and say, Lord, I don't want to be one of those people. I want to be someone who makes and helps make a way for the generation to come. So God's saying to, to, uh, to David, no, it's, it, there is a no here, but there is grace that is part of this. Listen, God's no's have a yes to it somewhere. So if God has said no to you, just know that there's a yes coming. Just keep seeking him, keep following him, and he'll give you the direction that you need. There's something so fun for me when I study the Old Testament. I, I love to look for Jesus, his Christology. I love to find out where is Jesus in the story. Sometimes when you read Old Testament narratives, Jesus pops right off the pages. Sometimes you just got to dig a little deeper. Well, in the story of David compared to Jesus, there, there is a, there's a correlation here. And I thought it'd be fun just to point that out to you because it's during David's most difficult time. Finding Jesus moment, both David and Jesus wept, here it is, wept over Jerusalem a thousand years apart. You see, David wept over Jerusalem on his way out. It's found in first or Second Samuel chapter 15. What's happening is Absalom, his son, is chasing him out of town. And he's going out via the Mount of Olives. And as he's heading out, it says that he turned and he wept over the city, the people of Jerusalem. A thousand years later, what happens? It's Jesus now coming in, the very same road, the very same mountain, and he's looking into Jerusalem, and the Bible says that he weeps over Jerusalem. Let me show you the viewpoint that both of them had. Topography doesn't change a lot. I got a picture. That is what they were most likely looking at. 
We were there about a month and a half ago, stood up on the Mount of Olives, looked down and thought to ourselves, my goodness, look at this, this view from the Mount of Olives. That's the golden gates there that are sealed up. That would have been the view that both David and Jesus would have had looking back. So why were they weeping? Well, they were weeping for the same reasons. They were weeping because their people were lost and they were living in rebellion. The things that break God's heart. <laughs> I read this and I thought to myself, Lord, I need to be broken where you're broken. I need to weep where you weep. And this is one of those places that, that I'm looking at my own life and the, the, the people around me and the generation that I'm part of. And I'm praying against rebellion. I'm praying, Lord, we don't want to be people that have rebellious hearts. We want to be people who walk humbly before you. We want to be people who listen to what you have to say by the leading of your Holy Spirit. So now David is passing this kingdom off to Solomon, and immediately I'm thinking, what's his resume? Who is this guy? I mean, if he's going to be the king, what's he done? Who is he? Well, Solomon, he was a, he was a stout fellow. He was a guy that had a lot going for him. See, God said to Solomon, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Now, when I heard this, I thought to myself, I probably would have answered impulsively, and it would have probably been all about me. I don't know how long Solomon took once God asked him that question. I, didn't, I don't know if he prayed or he fasted, if there was a time in between. But he answers in a, in a great way. Because what he does, and he answers this way, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight. That's what Solomon asked for. He said, God, if I could have anything beyond riches, if I could have anything, I want wisdom. Now, that's a wise man. He said, I, I want wisdom because I know it's going to take wisdom to lead these people. I know it's going to take wisdom to do the things that you've called me to do. So what does he do? He asks for wisdom. In a lot of ways, he's making a way for us. Because if you read James chapter 5, the word says, if you lack wisdom, what do you need to do? Ask God for wisdom. There are not a lot of hoops you have to jump through. I love that. The bar is pretty low there. It's not telling you to jump through a lot of hoops or go over a high threshold. It's just saying, hey, if you lack wisdom, ask God for wisdom. I have to every day. I have to ask God for wisdom every single day and say, Lord, I just need your wisdom today. You say, if I ask, you're going to bring it to me. Solomon had some amazing contributions to the Word of God. Because if you remember, he wrote the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. If you read those three books together, they actually tell us, they're, they're, they're journals to Solomon's journey. Because when he writes the book of Proverbs, he's in his middle ages. And he's dealing with a whole, uh, whole subject of wisdom. That's what he's dealing with. You read through the book of Saul, uh, uh, Proverbs, you see that. But then he writes the book of Ecclesiastes. That's, he's an old man now. And, and you can hear the grumpiness in him. You know, vanity, vanity, everything's vanity, whatever. You know, I mean, he tells us this is true. This is real life. And then in his youth, he writes the Song of Solomon. The dude's passionate, man. And so in his youth, he's talking about his passion. And we have this passage of scripture. And so in the first 21 verses of 1 Kings chapter 18, Solomon is taking time to get the people together. He's getting the people excited. You know, he builds this magnificent temple. By the way, the money amount, the dollar amount on just the temple alone converted to today's currency is over $30 billion. That's a, that's a building right there. 
The Temple Mount, the whole construction that took place on the top, is north of $100 billion. Magnificent structure that people could see it from miles away. You know what they would look at? They would see these huge doors. They could see the sun shining off the doors from 10, 15, 20 miles away. They knew they were coming to the holy place. And Solomon puts all of this together. He gathers the people and he says, what we're going to do now is we're going to take the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to move it up to the Holy Mount. About a five block journey, not a long journey, about five blocks from where David lived to the Temple Mount. So they take this and the crowd is excited about what's happening. It's a new beginning for the nation of Israel. And what does he do? What does Solomon do? He dedicates this temple with prayer. Now when we talk about prayer, sometimes it's not the most exciting subject. But reading through Solomon's prayer, I was really truly convicted because I recognize there are probably two things I never feel quite adequate. Two things that I just, I fall short. One is prayer and leadership. I mean, I, I, I always think I'm never doing enough in those two areas. So I have to work on those areas in my life. But I'm reading this thinking, oh my goodness, this is incredible, the way that he prays. In fact, there's such a New Testament influence, a Holy Spirit influence on how he prays. And so when he dedicates this, he, he's praying and he's saying, God, I, I want you to pay attention to us. I want you to hear us. When I read this passage of scripture, I pray to myself saying, God, would you improve my prayer life? Would you help me? Because there are times that I find myself praying during times of trouble. And I, I want to relieve any guilt that you might have. That's okay. I mean, if you can't pray to God during a time of trouble, I don't know who you're going to go to. So if you're in a time of trouble, you go to God. You run to God. Bible says he'll always be there for us. He really will be. Here's what I want. I, I wouldn't just want to pray in times of trouble. Rather that times of trouble would teach me how to pray all of the time. That during times of trouble I would gain and learn discipline about how to pray and what to pray over. You know, a long time ago, and I've been around a while to see these events take place in our nation and our world. Uh, there's statistics again. I don't know much about it, but I read the statistics, and, and, and they said that during the Iraq War, during 9-11, and those kind of times of crises, prayer and reading the Bible and church attendance skyrocketed. But about a year later, it all waned. I don't know what happened. Maybe, maybe the, the pressure was off. I don't know. But I thought, Lord, I don't want my life to be like that. I, I want to draw close to you. I, I want to be a man of prayer. And, and I need your help to do that. I need your wisdom to do that. In this prayer, you see it laid out for us in a beautiful way. It begins at verse 22. And again, I'm going to just read the highlights from some of this. It says, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands toward heaven, and said... Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or earth below. You know what he's doing? He's starting this prayer off with the right perspective of God. And I think for a prayer really to be effective, you want to start out by acknowledging God's greatness. You want to acknowledge his holiness. In fact, when you go to the place in the, in the New Testament, when the disciples came to Jesus and they said, hey, would you teach us how to pray? How does it start off? Jesus says the first thing you need to do is you need to say, hallowed be the name. Father, hallowed be your name. 
holy is your name, magnificent are you. Solomon starts his prayer off the same way. Prayers that begin with recognizing the nature and character of God set the tone for the rest of the prayer. That when I come to God, I want to acknowledge his holiness. I want to acknowledge his greatness. And then you go on and you recognize because he has a healthy perspective of God, he moves on and he prays a little more in verses 24 through 26. He says, you have kept your promises to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised and with your hand you have fulfilled it. See, this is the second thing that comes to mind is Solomon recognizes God as the maker and keeper of promises. He sees God's character. He acknowledges that. But then he follows it and he says, you are the maker and keeper of promises. So why is that important to me? Listen, if I don't have the promises of God in my life, if, if I'm not holding on to the promises of God in my life that are found in his word, my life is prone to wander. Uh, my life is prone to stray from God's word, from a relationship with Jesus Christ. See, it's the promises of God that anchor us. It's the promises of God that get us through every single day. It's the promises of God that make a difference. And I'm going to go this far. I'm going to go far enough to say this, that it's the promises of God that help every generation after generation after generation serve Jesus. Keep passing those promises on. If God has given you a promise, hold on to that promise. Know that that promise is real. The Bible says his promises to us are yes and amen. That we can find hope in the promises of God. God's promises are what preserves or keeps our children from generation to generation. We've gotten the practice, the discipline of praying God's promises over our kids. And one of the ways, one of the ways that we do that is um, at the end of every year, as Christmas is coming, my wife and I take probably two or three weeks before Christmas, and we start to pray for each one of our kids individually. We'll take one day and pray for my oldest son, Ronnie, and then the uh, next day, pray for Ryan, and the next day, Rebecca, and then we go down through all our grandkids. And what we're listening for are we're listening for God's promises to them. And then when we take that, we get a word, and it's scripture, and we write that out. And here's what we do. It's so much fun. It's something our kids look forward to. Our grandkids can't wait. They, they'd rather do this than open their presents. Annette, my wife, she makes this, these beautiful, like, crafts, ornaments, Christmas ornaments. And she takes the word and puts the name of the, of the child and the, the scripture right on it. She hangs them on the Christmas tree. And then Christmas Eve, we all gather around and all these little eyes are looking at me. Grandpa, can I, will you read me mine? Would you read me mine? I said, let me get to you. I'll be right there. We start from the youngest and work to the oldest. And I sit in front of my kids and I look at them eye to eye individually and I read the scripture to them. And you can see there's something that's happening that, that's transforming them. I, I can't define it. I can't articulate it all the time. But I can see what's going on, that their life is being changed. What I want them to understand is God's promises are for them. And it's God's promises that will bring them through very, very difficult times. Amen. I love the promises of God. Well, Solomon goes on a little further in verses 27 through 30. And what he does here... 
Because Solomon asked God to dwell in this place and honor those who seek him. You know what he's talking about when, he, when he's praying here? He's saying, yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. Lord my God, hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. Listen, he's saying, we know this temple can't contain your presence. We know that you can't be contained in a structure. We know you're greater than all of this. But you've chosen to come and be with us. You've chosen to come and have a relationship with us. This is prophetic because I think he's speaking out of messianic prophecy. He's saying that there will be a time where God will will come in flesh and he'll redeem his people and he'll give us the gift of his Holy Spirit because if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where is the temple of the Holy Spirit you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and Solomon implies that God is much greater than this building that they're going to be in even in its holiness and its grandeur God is bigger than all of this Solomon goes on. Just a few more things he says. Solomon prays that God would hear when people take a vow in the temple. In verses 31 through 32. What's he saying? He's saying there's no better place for people to come together in community like this. You are part of a community unlike any other community. It's the community of God. And in this community, God has said through his Holy Spirit... He said, you can work out your differences. You can, you can resolve your disputes. You can do this. Where two or three are gathered in my name, I will be there. Solomon's actually speaking to Matthew chapter 18. And a lot of times when we read Matthew chapter 18, it says two or three are gathered in my name. We, we make it, and, and it's good, we make it a, a prayer passage. It's actually a conflict resolution passage. If you read a little bit before, it's when two or three don't get along that they come together in the presence of God. And when God's people together resolve conflict, it makes him so happy. <laughs> it's something that brings joy to the heart of God. So he's saying, in, in this community, you can resolve your differences together. He goes on, he said, God would hear when his people are defeated. That's found in verses 33 and 34. I love the scripture that says in 1 Chronicles 7, 14, If my people will humble themselves and pray, I'll heal their land. You know, one of the things I found myself doing, and I, I, I think it's okay to do this, but pray, obviously, over our communities. Pray that God would change the hearts of unbelievers to believers. We want to pray that way. But when you look at Scripture, the main concern often that God has for us or in prayer is us, is that we can be praying for a lot of things going on out there, but we've got to pray for our own hearts to be humbled. <laughs> There's something in my heart that can be so prideful. There's something in my heart that wants to stray and run from God. What Solomon is saying here is come to this place, in this holy place, and give yourself to the Lord. Uh, that he would hear his people and that he would hear them when they're defeated. And there's times we feel that defeat. There are times where we feel down and beat up. Where do we go? We have to go to God. That should be our first step. That should be our very first step. When we say, Lord, I'm in trouble. I've been defeated. I'm going to come run into you. And then Solomon prays, God, would you hear us in times of plague and famine? 
I thought this to be interesting. I thought it interesting because we've had glimpses of plagues and famines. We've seen this. We've recognized it. But I know there are probably plagues in my own heart that when I come to the Lord, there are things in my heart that aren't right, that aren't right between me and him, between God and I, and aren't right with family and friends. That's a plague. And I said, Lord, would you, would you show me the plague of my heart where there's famine and not fullness? And typically it has to do when I'm critical or judgmental or I think I'm always right. Those are the areas of my heart that seems to die. And I don't want that to happen. I don't want that to, to be my story or my testimony. For the last couple of years, I've struggled with a family member in our home and, and um, in my family. And it's never fun. It's never pretty. And sometimes I'm not even sure why we're at odds with each other. And that's the weird thing. You can move on and look back and say, what were we mad about? That's usually what happens. And the other day, literally three days ago, the Lord said, I want you to make it right with him. And I thought, I don't want to make it right with him. I don't like him. The Lord said, you need to make it right. And I said, okay, okay, I'll make it right with him. I don't want some formal thing, you know, like let's sit down and talk and then, and then, I don't want to do that. Lord, would you make it happen? That, that's the fleece, you know, would you make it happen? driving down the road in my town, and this person that I was at odds with lives in another town, and uh, they were doing a job. Uh, they had a job. He's in construction right off the main street of my town. And I looked, and I saw him, and I went, oh, and the Lord said, there it is. <laughs> there it is. And so I turned around. And I went up. He was surprised. And I just told him I, I cared for him. I loved him and wanted to let him know how much I appreciated him. And you could see the ice melt. That's all it took, just a few words and off and running. But he wrote me back and he said, thank you for stopping. I don't know how all this works all the time. But I do know that I, I need to lean in. I need to lean in. And then there's something else here. God would hear his people when the foreigner prays. I love this. Did you know Jesus is a foreigner? <laughs> Did you know? It says in, in uh, Philippians chapter 2, he was in heaven and he comes to earth and he's a refugee uh, in earth. It, th those are even the words that are used in Philippians chapter 2. See, Israel constantly was getting in trouble for a lot of different reasons, but do you know the one reason they kept getting in trouble over and over and over again? Isaiah addresses it. It's because they weren't taking care of the foreigners. They weren't taking care of the refugees. And I thought, oh, Lord, we are seeing some things happen right now that we could be taking care of people who are displaced. 
And, and maybe like you, we've got behind Ukraine and we're saying, Lord, help us. We want to get behind them. We want to support them. Uh, today in our church back home, uh, we're, we're letting folks know, hey, you guys in the last few weeks have given $16,000 to Disaster Relief Fund, Foursquare Disaster Relief Fund, to help those who are displaced. Here's what I know. I know that God loves he loves it when his people reach out and help others. I know he loves that. It's a, it's a blessing to his heart. And you know what happens with us? We get blessed as well, that there's a blessing that rests on us. And, and we can see that. Uh, again, I'm going to be real specific here. I love the fact that Poland opened their doors immediately. They said, come on, come in. You know why? 1939, the same thing happened to them. They were peacefully living in their house one day and they were displaced the next by the Nazis. They know what this feels like. And you know, if you've ever been displaced, if you've ever felt alone, you know what it feels like. And so what do we do? God says, hey, reach out to those that have been displaced. And then the last thing, I'm going to close with this, that God would hear when Israel goes to battle and is made captive by their enemy. You say, well, how does that apply to my life? There are a lot of enemies lurking around us that want to bring our hearts into captivity. I think about addiction. I think about abuse. I think about shame. I think about that voice that repeats itself over and over again that says you're not good enough. I think about those things. And God says, I want you to be free from those enemies in your life. Where you felt defeated in the past, victory is before you. That the captivity that you've experienced, God would bring light and hope and deliverance to you. Would you bow your head with me? Father, today we've seen this wonderful model of prayer that really does apply to where we are right now. What we're doing, what we're up to. That this is a time, a season for Red Hills as uh, transition is before them. New beginnings are before them. I ask that we would go to you first, that we would have this passionate curiosity for your word, for you, and in that we would discover more and more each day how much you love us and care for us. Lord, I pray that you would deliver us today. If we're here and we're made captive by our enemy, whether it's addiction or shame or pain or depression, Lord, that you would free us, that you would shine your wonderful healing light on our pain and hurts. In Jesus' name we pray and we say, Amen.